how y'all doing? Last time I was here, there was like five inches of snow. And the place was packed, so I guess we need bad weather. Um, last time I was with Brady, we were in three days of prayer and fasting in Tulsa, and a lady with MS was healed, and a lady's lungs were healed, and a lady's feet were healed, and a pastor's diabetes was healed, and a hundred people were sanctified, and it was quite a time. I hope it happens tonight. I hope everybody in this room tonight knows before they leave that they're sanctified, and everybody in this room tonight that is sick leaves with no sickness. That would be a good night in the kingdom, wouldn't it? And Jesus said in Hebrews 13, I haven't changed. Everything I did in the book, I can't wait to do it again. Isn't that right? I've got this theme that God has been messing everything up and telling me that my whole prayer life should be this. It should be a funnel that empties everything that's going on in heaven and brings it into the earth. Every time we pray, it should be that his kingdom would come down here just as it is up there. That his will would be done down here just as it is up there. So every time you look at any person, any situation, any impossibility, sin. Is there any sin in heaven? Nope. Let's get rid of sin. Sickness. Not legal down here. Let's get rid of sickness. Depression. Oppression, carnality, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Every prayer that we pray should be to bring to earth what is in heaven or to get rid on earth what isn't in heaven. Amen. If you don't pray that way, just be still. <laughs> Boy, spotlights are on now. Can you see me? Because I can't see you anymore. So, um, I, I'm going to preach tonight some thoughts God gave me today as I was just meditating. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. I'm going to talk a little bit about a divided person. I think there's a lot of divided people in the church. Um, divided hearts, divided passions, divided love. I think there's a lot of divided people. I really do want to turn those off. Is that okay? I, I just can't see. I'm sorry. Um, this is better. You can turn the house lights up if that helps. But anyway, Romans 7. Let's look at Romans 7, verse 14. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. It's interesting. Paul, I think, here is talking about, my opinion, a person who has, has had a spiritual encounter. They want to love God, but there's something inside of them. There's another nature that's fighting against what the nature of God has inside of them. But I do the very thing that I don't want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
Hmm. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion, I'm going to say it again, a lot of people, the first part of this chapter I think speaks of an unregenerated person, but I think this section is talking about someone who's been born again, but they have not yet been sanctified entirely because they're wrestling with the fact that part of them really wants to please God. Part of them wants to fulfill the law. Part of them wants to fulfill God's commands, but there's something inside of them that's fighting against it. Does that make sense, church? I think the church is full of that. I think the church is full of people that want to come to church. They want to do the right thing, but they don't have some supernatural force inside of them when nobody's looking that wants to do the right thing along with what they want to do the right thing with. We need more power from God, don't we, church? If you get to the end of this section of Romans 7, it says, Oh, wretched man that I am. I think the only hope any of us have is if we get to the place where we realize that all we have is wretchedness outside of Jesus. If we can indict ourselves as wretched, then there's no condemnation for those people. Because the power of sin and death that keeps us in bondage, the carnal nature, is no match for the spirit of life and holiness that the Holy Spirit can bring into us. Romans 8, 1 and 2. So, so I just wanted to set the stage for what I feel of duplicity. Maybe if you had a title for this message, it's duplicity. Now, I only have one message. It's like 800 hours long. <clears throat> and I'm still adding to it. Charles Spurgeon said that the greatest preachers in the world have four messages. I have one. And if I had to have one title, it would be it's all or nothing. If it's not your all, God doesn't recognize it. No matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, James 4.17 applies to everybody. If you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, it becomes sin. So tonight, if there's sin in your life, and you don't repent, then it becomes a greater sin. Tonight, if the Lord reveals to you that you're not sanctified, you don't have a pure heart, and you don't deal with it, it becomes sin. Tonight, if you're sanctified, but you're not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, and operating in the gifts, and bringing transformation to everybody you bump into, and the Spirit reveals it to you, and you don't deal with it, it becomes sin. So what I'm saying is, James 4.17 is the litmus test, no matter how long you've been a Christian. If the Spirit reveals to you that something needs to be done to take you to a higher level of intimacy with Jesus and you fail to do it, it becomes sin. So now I want to go to James, which is, I don't even like the book of James, but let's go to James. I shouldn't have said that, but I mean it. I don't like a book that starts off counted all joy when all, you know what, breaks loose. I don't like that, but... I'm going to point out nine things that I think point to a person that has a double-minded or a duplicity in their spirit or their heart. I have a message on the Holy Spirit I may preach here. I don't know yet. But I, I preach on the nine things, the fruit, the gifts, those nine. I found nine things in James that would identify what a double-minded person looks like. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 8. Look at this one. Being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. I think an evidence, if you were a believer, but you have not yet received the baptism of the Spirit to make your heart pure to where you're no longer double-minded, one of the examples of how that would manifest 
is that you are unstable. You're inconsistent. You're unsteady. You waver in every part of your life. Your life kind of reads like those scriptures in Romans 7. Isn't that exciting? This is the saints, isn't it? Wednesday night, only the saints come to church. You know what I love about this? These are the ones who are eligible to get the double-minded hearts fixed. The saints. The people in the world don't have any idea about double-minded. They don't want to do good. They just want to do what they want. But we want to do good. But if we don't have the sanctifying work of the Spirit, then all of a sudden we realize nothing in our life ever works out because it's all unstable and frazzled. That's one of the things that I see in James as I read through. The second thing I want to point out is in chapter 1, verse 22. I love this one. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This is point number two of a person who has a double-minded heart or a person who's duplistic in their nature. They brag about the fact that they don't miss church. They brag about the fact that they know the Word, but then they don't do it. It's quiet here in Indiana. It's, uh, it's just quiet. Um, li- listen to this. When Jesus said, I give you my authority, right, in Matthew 10, and then in Matthew 10, 7, he says, this is what you do with it. You heal the sick, you raise the dead, you cast out demons, and you cleanse lepers. This is what you do. So if we hear that word, but we're not doing it, it's in red letters. If we hear what the word tells us to do to replicate the life of Jesus, we're not supposed to be mimickers of anybody else but Jesus. We're supposed to imitate Jesus. And everything Jesus did, we're supposed to be doing, and even greater things. And if we know it and hear it, but we don't do it, I think that's evidence of a double mind, a double heart, a divided heart. We know the Word, but we don't do it. Smile at me. Nobody's going to say amen, so just smile at me and it'll get better. (laughs) The third thing I want to point out is chapter 2, verse 9. Look at this. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is what I think, that to love with partiality is an evidence of a double mind, double heart. We love people who can pay us back. We love people who will benefit us. We love people who will promote us. But we don't love the unlovable like Jesus. We'll always reach out if we know there's something in it for us, but we'll reach out when there's nothing in it for us. It's hot up here. Um, Point number four. Aren't you glad there's only nine? Point number four. James chapter 2, verse 22. Look at this one. You see that faith was working with works. And as a result, the works of the works, faith was perfected. The point here is, if you have faith but you have no works, it's an evidence that you're double-minded. God doesn't want you just to have faith and sit around and just hope that he does something. He wants us to replicate the life of Jesus. If you, if you just read all of Jesus, he not only went around and taught and spoke and believed, 
but he did. He healed. He performed. He delivered. He set free. You know, when, when Luke wrote Acts in the first chapter, verse 1, he said, Most excellent Theophilus, in my former book, I started to tell you about all the things that Jesus did and said. Well, Jesus wasn't double-minded. He not only believed, he produced. What I'm saying here is you can have all the faith in the world, but if you're not implementing it into practice, if you're not activating the life of Jesus to transform everybody in your path of influence, I think it's evidence that we have a double mind. I think we're fearful. You know, I was reading in Galatians today. Paul said, I didn't come because some man endorsed me. I didn't come because some man called me. I come because God called me. Well, I can identify. And he said this. He says, those people with reputations. You know the danger I see in our church, our Nazarene movement? There's a lot of people with a lot bigger reputations than anointing. I'm sick of reputations and titles. I want to see somebody that walks around and his shadow heals somebody. I want to see somebody that replicates the life of Jesus. Are you with me here, church? Faith without works. Hmm. Uh, Point number five. Chapter 3, verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. This is, this is what I think. If you can come to church and sing the songs and praise God and walk out of the building and condemn or gossip or slander one of God's creations. If you can praise and slander... That would be an evidence of a duplistic heart. That's right. That's right. If you can act churchy at church and act like the world at home, if you can talk churchy here and talk different at home, I think it's an evidence of a divided heart. I don't think if your heart is pure that sometimes it's salty and sometimes it's fresh. I don't think if your heart is pure that the fruit of your lips sometimes will be thorny and other times will be healing and gracy. I think if you are single-minded and single-hearted and pure-hearted, you will talk like Jesus all the time. Amen. Matthew twelve thirty-four. Your mouth will speak out of the overflow of your heart. And what your heart is filled with is what will flow out. Amen. Amen. I'm preaching from experience, by the way. Uh, every one of these things indicts me before I got sanctified. I lived them. I only tried to do things for people that could help me. Everything in my life was chaos. I talked one way around church people, another way around the world. And all along, I loved God. Every one of these things I've experienced until God crucified my heart. Are you with me, church? Let's keep, let's keep going. We've got to get through this because it's hard. Point number six, look at, look at this chapter four. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Conflicts among you. What is the source? Hmm. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? 
This is speaking of not conflicts that come from the world or from outside. This is speaking of conflicts that come from hearts of people in the church that are inside. And the source is our pleasures, which is the word hedon, where we get hedonistic. It's just the lust for anything that appeases your flesh. He's saying that these are the things you should avoid, things that appease your flesh. Because if you, if, you, if you pursue the kind of things that make you feel comfortable instead of the things that elevate the body of Christ and make Jesus comfortable, eventually it's going to split the church. As an evidence of a double heart, a double-minded heart. Point number seven, look, look at this one. It's, it's chapter four, verse three. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. I think an evidence of a divided heart is you, play, you pray, pray fleshly prayers and your prayers never get answered and so you stop praying. Well, we need more people. Well, we need more money. No, we need more presence. Well, we need a new, we need a new, we need a new program. No, we need more presence. Jesus says this in John sixteen twenty four. He says, "You can ask anything in my name, and I will do it, so that your joy will be full." Anything means anything. And I'll do it, which means you'll have breakthrough. You'll see miracles. So if we would stop praying the prayers that we want to appease us, and we would start praying the prayers that he can't wait to answer because it's been his will since the foundation of the earth to do those things, then Jesus won't have to spend all of his time trying to interpret our prayers to the Father. Here's an example. God, is it your will? If it's your will, would you heal Aunt Martha? Well, where in the Bible is it not? So when you pray that prayer, the Father says, I don't understand, Jesus. Can you explain that? And Jesus says, I know. I tried to teach them, but they're stubborn. What they meant was, and he has to explain it. Now, here's my example of how that would be fixed. Is Aunt Martha's sickness in heaven? No. Then we don't have to say, Jesus, if it's your will, heal her. We can just say, God, unleash your power from heaven and heal her. Then we'll see breakthrough, and then when we see the miraculous signs of the kingdom in our life on a regular basis, our joy barometer will be off the charts, not with religious activities that we can do, but with the full measure of God's joy that results in the things that only He can do. And that will only happen if we stop praying things we want and start releasing the things that He wants. Praise God. We're almost done with this part. This is just the introduction. Um, <laughs> point number eight. Look at this one. Chapter four, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yeah, you do not even know what your life will be tomorrow. You're just a vapor. Appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live also and do this or that. 
I, I, I just believe that one of the examples of a double-minded Christian is that their security is not in Jesus, but it's in financial security. I think when we feel our finances slipping, our faith slips right in the same proportion that our pocketbook thins. Unless we're not double-minded. God is not in recession. I'm, I'm going to share something with you. Now, our headquarters is in trouble for money. So how do you know that? I have inside information. <laughs> but the giving is the half of what it used to be about. Because the economy's bad and people are fearful. I'm going to tell you something. God's not in recession. And we don't have a Nazarene money problem. We have a Nazarene faith problem because we base our blessing and our joy on what we can produce and what we can control instead of relying on what only he can do and he can control. In recession, we should give more because then we could get a hundredfold return in the Lamb of Famine. We, we could just model the people in the Bible Instead of holding back when it gets harder, we should release more when it gets harder, and then God would get more glory through us because it wouldn't be a way that seems right to man. It would be a way that doesn't make any sense to man, and in the end, God would get more glory. And then point number nine, it's just right there in chapter five. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. I, I think point number nine, the evidence of a divided heart would be someone... That wealth corrupts. Wealth corrupts. Instead of being used as, what did Moses say in Deuteronomy 8, 18? It's me who gives you the power to get wealth so that I can establish my covenant in the earth. If your heart is not single-minded but it's double-minded, wealth usually corrupts you where you rely on nothing but that. But if our heart is pure, wealth is used as an asset for the kingdom of God. Amen. So, so it says, in resist the devil. But before that, it says, submit to God. So the cure for this is, put myself in total reliance and submission to God's authority. And when I do that, then the resisting of the devil will take care of itself. So I'm, I'm just going to give you now a, a, an example Turn with me in, to Matthew chapter 16, and I want to show you some examples of the disciples' double-mindedness. The disciples' double-mindedness. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, first of all, I'm just going to read verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I get a drink here for a minute. When Jesus says, watch out, he's not one that's prone to emotion. It's really a word that it, it connotes a lot of emotion. And it, really what he's saying is, watch out! That's grammatically what it's saying there. I just wanted you to be aware of that. Plus, you're sleeping, I can tell. Um, watch out. Beware. Of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, I studied this leaven, this word leaven, it's this zume thing. It's, it has an effect that manipulates and works through from the inside out. And the problem is, we've tried 
we've tried to emulate the, the leaven of the things we're not supposed to emulate instead of being the leaven of the kingdom. God's kingdom in our lives, personally and corporately, work from the heart out. That's why we have to get the heart pure. But the, the, but the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, the leaven of Herod, they work from the outside in because they try to control. So what we do is we exchange the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit for things that we can do. Therefore, we have no results that are lasting. The, the leaven of the Pharisees is legalism. Simply put, it would be formed with no power. We can have a great program. We, we can have a great structure. We can have great government. We, we can have great policies, but, but without power. That would be the leaven of the Pharisees. Then the leaven of the Sadducees is the leaven of unbelief. That, that, that is, we, just, we don't even believe the word anymore because it's not happening. Or the power of the Spirit because we haven't seen it. We have a picture of the dove. But it's not normal in our services for everybody to come in and get touched by the power and get healed and delivered. That, that's the leaven of the Sadducees. Then the leaven of Herod is a, it's a leaven of manipulation. It's control. It's domination. It's, we can do it in the flesh. We'll just work harder. We'll just try harder. Now, Jesus starts out this teaching, beware of these leavens, right? That's the way he starts out. But, but look at this. Look at, look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea and Philippi, this is an evil place. It's at the foot of a mountain. It's where there's little stream things coming out. There's all these little pan gods that are written on all these rocks all around this place. It's a place that people call the portal to hell. It's a real evil place where a lot of demon Satan worshipers did their thing back in this day. Jesus brings his disciples... To the gate of hell, if you will, because the gates of hell can't prevail against Jesus. So he always tries to show his glory off in the worst of situations. We always try to avoid him, and if truth be known, we just let the chips fall where they fall. God's just trying to get us where he shows us the breakthrough. So he brings these to this place where it's just evil. It's, just, it's, it's an evil district. There's a lot of demonology, and he's talking and asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is the question. This is the question that I think needs to be answered in the tribe of Nazarenes in the American version of Nazarendom. Not in the Horn of Africa. Not in South America, in Cali, not in Indonesia or China, in the underground church or India, but in America, we need to find out who he is again to us and be able to say it prophetically, not learned response with the Herod, Pharisee, Sadducee mindset, but with revelation of who he is. We need to be able to say who you are and mean it from our heart, not something we've learned, but something that we know. Are you with me, church? So he says, who do you say? He said, I don't care what they say. You're my boys. You're my church. You're my Nazarenes. Jesus is a Nazarene. He's not a Baptist. That's John's boys. He's not a Pentecostal. That was Paul's guys. Jesus is a Nazarene. 
I know what they say. What do you say? Are you with me? So, so look at this. Simon Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that awesome? Now look at this. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, Blessed are you. Simon is a word where we get from Simeon. This is what it means. You've heard. Simon means you've heard. You don't know me by head knowledge or school knowledge or book knowledge. You know me because you've heard. You've had an encounter. You've had a revelation. You are blessed because you've got fresh manna. You are blessed because you've heard my voice, because my life is in the voice. That's Galatians 1.12. Paul said, I heard it by revelation. Jeremiah 1.9. I heard it by revelation. Simon, you've heard. Bar means son. Jonah means dove. He says, Simon, you are so blessed because you heard and you're my son and the dove spoke to you. Come on. What is he saying? Jesus, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down, sat on him like in the form of a dove. John 1.32. Everywhere Jesus went, he just listened to the dove. Every step he took, he honored the dove. Every word that he said, it was in honor of the dove. Every miracle he did, because the dove showed him to do it. Every supernatural thing, it was just releasing the presence of that Holy Spirit dove that sat on him. And now we got Simon sitting here at the gate where all the pan gods and all the demonic activity is, and it's the gate of hell. And Jesus is saying, I know what everybody else says, but what do you guys say? And all of a sudden, Simon hears the dove, and he says, You are the Christ! And Jesus says, you are blessed. You know the church that would be blessed would be a church that's operating in the revelation of the Holy Spirit. The church that would be blessed and flowing in the miracles that Jesus did would be a church that's listening to the dove because they haven't chased him off by some program. I'm just getting started. I don't know how to do three points. I do. We start, we get halfway, we finish. That's the three points. You heard. You know, it says in Proverbs 25, 2, it is the glory of God to hide things, but it is the glory of kings to find them. The greatest thing we can do as spirit-filled holiness people besides leading someone to Jesus, is hearing the voice. Digging and getting hungry. And so the Holy Spirit comes down and He reveals secrets to you that nobody else... You know, it says in Matthew 13 that the prophets of old would have died to have what we have because the Holy Spirit doesn't just come and visit. He wants to dwell in us. We can be a blessed nation because we're people that hear Daddy talk all the time. Amen. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice.
Amen. So we got revelation. Made him blessed. So, so, so he says, um, whew, flesh and blood didn't reveal this revelation. But look at verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades won't overpower it. Now, now look at this. Simon means to hear, but Peter means rock. Petra. Because you got the revelation, now I want to impart to you. You see, you get revelation, it's an impartation. Everything Jesus taught, it was didomai, it's impartation. What was he doing? He was taking everything that was in heaven through him and releasing it to us. He was imparting the kingdom. He wants us to be ambassadors of the kingdom. We must have something to impart. So we got revelation... And because he got revelation, then he got impartation. And I I read some scholars, and they say, you know, on Peter's confession, I'll build my church. I don't buy that, because that's not in the context of what's talking about. You know what it's talking about? We're right here on this rock where all the pan-gods and all the demonizers and all the Satan worshipers think that all the power of Satan exists. Peter, since you're hearing from the Holy Spirit, right here on this rock that the enemy thinks is his, I'm going to build my church because I've revealed myself to you. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care how many people are praying against you or saying curses against you or how many people are bad-mouthing you. I don't care how bad it gets. If you're getting revelation on that rock, God's going to build His church in the worst of situations. In the worst of situations. God gets all the glory. He likes odds where it's like 1 to 850. Elijah. 300 to 100,000. Gideon. 1 to 400,000. Upper room. God always wants the odds. So on this rock, right here where nobody would dream of it happening, I'm going to build my church. Because you heard And you are so blessed. Now I can impart the kingdom. Are you with me? So look at this now. Look at the next thing that happens in verse 19. Now it's now it's declaration. You have revelation, impartation. Now you got declaration. I will give you the keys, keys to the kingdom. Who does he give the king to? The keys to people that are hearing his voice. People that are willing to stand the test. People that are willing not to shrink back. He'll give the keys. And he, said, he uses this rabbinical language, which is, it's, it's very weighty. It's, 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 the, it's declaration language. It's not, well, he might do it. It's, he's doing it. This is what he's doing. Get in. Get in on it. It's declaration. It's not, maybe someday revival will come. It's revival's here. Let's step into it. It's declaration language. You get declaration when you have an impartation of His glory. You see, what I think we're missing is we have a lot of good teaching, we have a lot of good preaching, but we don't have a lot of good encounters. What what I'm saying is in, 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 in John, when he was on the island of Patmos, when he had that encounter with the glorious risen Savior, he never got over that and he wrote that revelation. Man, can you imagine the encounter? And what I'm saying is in Acts 9, 3, when... 
Paul had that encounter with the glorious Jesus and his face was like the galaxy and it knocked him off the horse. He never got over it. And when you have an encounter with God and you get revelation, that's when the impartation happens. That's when you can start saying, I don't know. I was blind, but now I see. I was going to that town, but he changed my life. And you're able to decree out of the impartation. This is what he's saying. He says, Whatever, whatsoever things you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatsoever things you've loosed on earth have already been loosed in heaven. Heaven's waiting on us. Heaven's waiting on us tonight. There's no sickness in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. There's no carnality in heaven. He's waiting on us to believe and become the vessels that empty heaven and fill the earth. So here's the example of the duplistic mind. You ready? Look at verse... 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And then Peter took him aside. The, the word there means grabbed him. Peter grabbed Jesus. And he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter, <laughs> you got revelation. You got impartation. You started decreeing. You got in the kingdom. And then in a moment of time, you're trying to tell me what to do. I would say that's double-minded. You with me, church? You know, you know, Jesus prayed that prayer, but all Nazarenes know the prayer of John 17. We use it. John 17, 17, sanctify him by the truth. Your word is truth. As the Father sent me, now I send you. And for your sakes, I sanctify myself. So that you too can be truly sanctified. Before he prays that prayer, he thanks God that these are his boys and they're following his word and they know that he's from God and they're not of the world even as he's not of the world. And, and he's thanking God that the world hates them because they're obeying God. And then after thanking God that these boys are still kept by the power of his name, he says, but they still need to be sanctified. They still need to be sanctified. If those 12 guys that were in a small group accountability Bible study training seminar for three and a half years with Jesus need to be sanctified, I bet some Nazarenes do. You know what I'm saying, church? I mean, you look at Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 9, John chapter 20, John chapter 5. There's examples of this. I mean... Sometimes they would be arguing, can we sit on your right or your left? Or sometimes they would be arguing, who's the greatest? Can we be the greatest? Or sometimes they'd get mad because they couldn't get the food they wanted at the right restaurant, so they'd want to call fire down. Or, or sometimes they would not be able to heal somebody, and after Jesus healed them, they would go to him in secret because they know he gave them authority, but they couldn't do it. And he'd say, because you don't believe. 
And then sometimes they would hide in rooms because they were afraid of men. And Jesus would walk right through the wall and say, why are you afraid? And sometimes they would argue about, well, I know more scripture than you. And Jesus would say, all the scripture points to me. And if all you're trying to do is get honor from men, you'll get none from me. I mean, you just go down through the list. All these disciples, they loved God, but they weren't sanctified because they were still double-minded. church of Jesus Christ would really have the acts to encounter. They would want more encounters. That's one downfall in our Nazarene tribe. Well, I'm sanctified. I don't need any more. I want to remind you that they got sanctified in Acts 2. They got rebaptized and filled in Acts 4. And then they asked for more in Acts 6. And then they laid hands on other people in Acts 8 in Samaria. And then Acts 10, they found devout, God-fearing people that liked to give offerings. And they got baptized in the Spirit. And the ones that laid hands on them got over their prejudice at the same time. In Acts chapter 19, they got baptized in the Spirit. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that if you're really sanctified, tonight you want more than you've ever wanted. If you don't, I don't know if you're really sanctified. I'm going to give you my experience of how I was sanctified. I was, I was 34 years old. Um, Mom and Dad raised me right. I got saved when I was 14. I lived on fire for three years, and I sinned, and I went into a 17-year dark time where I had shame in my heart because of sin. And at the end of that, in my 30s, I started doing all these holy things that I thought would make me holy. Because I had been influenced by the leaven of Sadducees, Pharisees, and Herod. If I can do more, like give more money, do more study, do more prayer. See, that's, that's the lie of the enemy. If we're not getting our joy complete by seeing supernatural breakthrough, then we resort to, well, I pray this much, and I fast this much, and I do this much volunteer work. And that's not joy. That's religion. And that's what I did. And so after trying to do all these things to earn my holiness, everything that I did pushed God farther away. Second Peter, what, 2 says, if you fail to enter the holy commandment, you end up worse off than before you were born again. And I knew I needed to be sanctified, but I never just trusted God to do it because I always thought I had to add something to it. There's the mindset of the Herod. I thought I had to have a certain amount of emotion. I thought I had to have a certain amount of passion or tears. I didn't know I could just come up and receive a pure heart because Jesus said it's finished. I thought I had to add to it because I heard testimonies. And and so I started praying a prayer like this. In 1995, I said, God, if you can't take away my fear, my shame, my failure, I mean, I'd failed in everything I touched. I failed. I was unstable. If you can't change me, then kill me. That became my prayer life. And on June 15th of 1995, a a semi-like truck hit the side of my truck. And it broke my back and broke my pelvis and tore my urethra out of my bladder and ripped my liver in half. And it just crushed my insides on June 15th of 1995. The night before the accident... I remember coming home, my wife, I was so distraught because of pressure. I had a lot of pressure. 
I didn't have peace. I had pressure. There's a difference. And she said, why don't you give up and trust God? And it's great advice. And then that night I had a dream, and I believe God speaks to us in dreams. And the dream, I was on the edge of a cave holding on, and my fingernails were peeling back, and God was below me. Jesus was right there, and he said, just let go, and I'll catch you. But I thought I had to fix my messes because I'm an American. So I didn't let go. And then the next day, on the way to work, that truck hit me. So I'm in these tests all day long, and the angel that God sent kept me alive. I had an angel keep me alive. All day long, I would leave my body, and I could see myself laying there, and he would just say, don't leave, we're not done. We're not done with you yet. I'd go back in my body. Pain's real bad. They wouldn't give me anything for pain. The nurses said, Mr. Bohai, we can't give you anything until we find out everything that's wrong. And that happened all day. Finally, I got in the ICU room. I'm just making this very, very short. And they started the morphine drip. And so now I don't have the physical pain. I can't walk. They had a catheter in my stomach, which I had for like a year, 13 months, actually. I had a catheter in my stomach. But now I had such emotional pain because my whole life I've tried to cover up my heart by looking busy and okay. I've tried to put on the facade. I've let the leaven of Sadducees and Pharisees and Herod, not the leaven of the kingdom. So I always had this mask. I'm okay because I'm busy. And I'm going to tell you, busyness is the greatest tool the enemy uses in Nazarenes. He doesn't need you to be busy. He needs you to be at rest and let him be busy through you. He doesn't need you to do anything for God. He needs you to sit at his feet and do things from God. He doesn't need you to be a Martha. He needs you to be a Mary. She chose the good portion, the all-you-can-eat Jesus buffet. I believe the foundation of our life is the Bible, but I believe our, our life is the voice. And when you sit at Jesus' feet and live on the voice... That's the all-you-can-eat Jesus buffet. He said, it won't be taken from her. I want to give her more. Well, I lived my whole life as a Christian, as a young man, grew up in my 30s, busy, busy, busy. I think that's one of the reasons why Satan doesn't have to demon-possess a lot of Christians in America, because they're no threat to his kingdom. We're not a threat to his kingdom if we're just stressed out surviving. So I'm in that ICU room, and I'm so afraid. My wife says, honey, there's 100 people that want to see you. And I was too afraid to see one of them. I didn't have any emotional strength left. I was 34 and a half years old. All my emotional strength, my facade, my ability to put on the religious mask was gone. I couldn't see one person. And I remember there looking at the ceiling saying, Jesus, this is it. I'm dying, aren't I? This is it. I knew I was dying. I remember looking at my heart monitor, and I saw it go flat. It was 5.37. And Jesus came up to me. He appeared to me. He came right to my bed. He said two things. The first thing he said was, son, I have forgiven your sin. I'm so happy. I always thought I had to earn it. You see, I was stubborn. I had selective hearing. And, and when you know that your sins are forgiven, it's a load lifted, isn't it? You know, what is it, Romans 5, when it says, you know, you're going to have peace with God when you know you're justified. That's a good feeling, isn't it, church? 
But then he asked me this question. He said, when will you trust me with your life? When will you trust me with your life? I've forgiven your sins. I just want you. Now I tried, how many times did I try to be sanctified? I can't count them. And this time I didn't try. I got a revelation because he was there. I got an impartation. And so I just declared yes. This is my prayer. Yes. One word. Yes. Are you kidding? It wasn't revival. It was a hospital bed. It was like, on this hospital bed! So it seemed like he cut me open. Sound effects. seemed like he cut me open. And he took out all my fear and my lust. I had so much lust. Lust for sexual immorality. Lust for power. Lust for acceptance. Lust for man's approval. I was full of it. He dug it out. Took out my fear. Took out my shame. Took out my darkness. (laughs) Dug it out. And then he filled me. Man, I came to, and I just remember saying, Jesus is here! I remember trying to scream, and I couldn't scream because I was on morphine. I had ice chips all day. I couldn't say nothing, but I was trying to scream. Jesus is here. You know, in John 17, Jesus said, they're not of the world. I believe when you're born again, you're not of the world. But in Galatians 6.14, the power of a cross is not just to get you out of the world. It's to get that world out of you. There's always the twofold work of sanctification. The part that extracts you from the world. Even in inanimate objects, it's twofold. Gold, silver, bronze was sanctified or separated from the world before it could be sanctified and consecrated to God. Even in inanimate objects, it's two. And on June 15, 1995, he didn't just get me out of the world, but he got all that out of me. And I came to, and I remember that first week in the hospital, I led seven people to the Lord. And in the first six months, I led 181 people to the Lord. And I didn't even know what I was doing, except I couldn't stop decreeing because I'd had an impartation, because I'd had a revelation. I had an encounter. I can't recover. I think we're missing encounters. I think what Nazarenes need is a Damascus Road experience again. I don't mean one that you can control. I mean one that knocks you off your horse. And you say, man, what was that? God must be here. Did you hear what I'm saying? I don't mean your three points. and I mean you're just wrecked. And your makeup's wrecked. And your snot's running. And your hair's a mess. And 
and, and, and it's just a mess. And, and not for mess's sake, but because you've had an encounter with the Holy God. Praise God. For two years, I didn't even know what he did to me. That's why I don't think reputation should be greater than anointing. I don't think your education and your pedigree should be greater than anointing. I don't care what school or seminary you went to. If you're not doing what Jesus said, I'm not impressed. If you're not healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out, if you're not doing what Jesus said, forget about your pedigree. Let's have an encounter. Are you with me here tonight, church? And I was praying. I said, Jesus, what did you do to me? It was two years later. What did you do to me? Because I'm nosy. And it wasn't wearing off. It wasn't like I got an emotional high and then it, it wasn't that. It was like my nature, my passion, my desires. I just wanted to make things right with people. I didn't want to get even. I didn't want to be first. I just loved and he changed me because I was so self-centered. And I just did things for pleasure. And I just did things because I wanted to get something back. And all that changed. And it didn't wear off. And two years later, I'm saying, God, what did you do to me? And I remember he spoke to me. I had another encounter. Uh, life's in the voice. He said, son, that's when I purified your heart. And I said, well, Jesus, everybody needs this. And he says, I know, that's why I died. And I said, what are we going to do? He says, I want to use you to wake up my church. And I said, how could you use me? I'm a carpenter. And it's stupid, stupid to say to Jesus, but I said it. How can you use me? And in the first 18 months after God told me that he had sanctified me, you see, I got a revelation. And I got an impartation. So I started talking about it to everybody I knew. And all four of my teenagers got sanctified because they wanted what Daddy had. And my wife, Debbie, got sanctified. And my brother, Doug, and his wife and his five children and 18 cousins and one uncle and both my sisters because I couldn't stop decreeing what I was experiencing by revelation. Is anybody with me in the house? Now, now listen to this. Listen to this. If you don't have this revelation tonight, you could have it. If you don't have this experience tonight, you could have it. I, I, I didn't have to work nothing up. I just got to the place where I could say yes. I got stripped of all my religion, all my learning, all my control. And I was to the end of Dan. And it was just one word. Yes. I haven't recovered. You say, well, I'm glad it worked out for you, Dan. Well, it did. But it wasn't the path I would choose. In 07 and 08 and 09, I lost $15 million. My wife and I lost everything, literally everything. We sold our wedding rings. We sold our homes. We sold our everything. But I didn't lose joy. I didn't lose peace. 
I didn't lose Jesus. I was not unstable. It was amazing. And I said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, buy a Bible and read it. Okay. So I did. And at the end of that two weeks, I had an encounter at a gas station in Laramie, Wyoming, at a shell station on Interstate 80. I had another encounter. I'm pumping gas. I've just lost $15 million. I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. All I've ever known is construction. I'm pumping gas. I hung up the thing, got ready to get my receipt. The Holy Spirit says, now I want you to preach the gospel until you die. Period. So, so my wife comes back to the bath. She's in the bathroom. And she comes back to the truck. We're in my red truck. I said, honey, God just called me to full-time preaching. I said, that'll teach you to go to the bathroom. That's, I didn't know what I was going to say. Well, the reason why I'm sharing that with you is this. This experience is not hinged on circumstances. He becomes the circumstance. I have, I have a frame of mind now that when people ask, what are you going through? I always say, Jesus. I don't care what you're facing. If you're in him, you're going through Jesus. It could be financial setback. It could be a physical imperity. It could be a, it could be a sickness. It could be a relationship problem. It doesn't matter. When Jesus is your all, he's your circumstance. He becomes the paradigm. What, I'm going through Jesus. What are you going through? So I've had this experience of being sanctified and got rid of my double mind and got a pure heart on June 15, 1995. And I can't recover. And I've had subsequent encounters. And so I live by revelation. I live by the revealed presence of Jesus, by his dove that speaks to me. Because I don't want to do anything that chases off the voice. Do you want this experience? I don't want to do an altar call where we do bow your head and close your eyes. I hate it. If you're ashamed, then let's just go home. But if you want to be free tonight of fear, of sin, of carnality, of failure, of un- unstableness, of pride, of lust, if you want your heart to be pure, if you want to be single-minded and one with Jesus and not double-minded where Jesus is there sometimes but other times you chase him off because you want to call the shots, if you want to get rid of everything in you that's not like Jesus and let him fill you with all of him by giving him all of you, that's all he wants. I don't think it has to be a negative experience. I think it's probably the most positive experiences you'll ever have this side of heaven. I don't think there's any shame in wanting to be sanctified. I think there's shame in staying religious with no power. Will you come with me right now if you want God to purify your heart? Wednesday night saints, the saints, not the Sunday morning people, the saints. The saints. I don't want to do any music. I don't want you to stand up. If you want God to sanctify your heart and make you single-minded, single-hearted, where you're not afraid, you're not doing things out of fear, you're doing things out of love and freedom, 
Would you come and stand here with me and let's pray that God would give you a pure heart. I want you to come right now. Would you come, church? I just want you to press in right quick. I just want you to come stand here right quick. If you want God to purify your heart, if you want the power of Pentecost, you want the power of heaven, you want to be holy, not divided, you want to be united. You and Jesus. He said, well, Brother Dan, I had this back in the 70s. Well, come get it back. Well, I had it in the 90s. Come get it back. You can get a pure heart back this way you got it the first time. If you need God to purify your heart, I want you to move quick. I just want you now, now I'd like the piano player to play something softly. But, but if you need God to purify your heart and take away your fear of the past, your fear of sin, your fear of failure, your fear of man, you just want to be pure. You want to be holy. If the Spirit's drawing you, not the preacher... If the Holy Spirit is saying, this is your night, I want to set you free, just come. If you feel the draw of the Spirit, that's the dove trying to talk to you and give you revelation. Go ahead, go ahead, brother, somebody play. Or just have, yeah, just play something. I want some music. Anybody else? You say, brother Dan, I don't know. Why don't you come and know? God bless you, sir. God bless you. I don't want you to worry about what people in this room think. I want us to worry about what Jesus thinks. Lord, don't let this be a bunch of churches coming together. Let's just be one family tonight. Well, we don't care what other pastors think. We just care what Jesus thinks. Will you come forward and let God give you a brand new revelation and impartation so you can start speaking out of the overflow and not out of religion? Let him take away the duplicity, and you're just one with him. Amen? Now, you good folks in the seats, will you come press in around these, and let's cover them in prayer while I lead prayer? Can we just press in and surround them? Just, just press in behind them, and let's support in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that people have prayed tonight. We came in the room. There were 20-some people crying out for your presence and your glory. I thank you, Jesus, that you haven't, you haven't ignored this room, but you've come in with your presence, and you've made it where people want what you have to offer. We're not asking for a better attendance record. We're asking for a greater revelation. We're asking for purity. We're asking for power. We're asking for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We're asking for something that won't, that won't run out. And so, Jesus, I pray you'd baptize these good folks with fire and the Holy Spirit. I, I mean wreck them. I, I, I mean change the way they talk. I pray they would be so overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving that people would say, are you a Jesus person? Because their tongue would give them away. I pray that their tongue would give them away. Change the way they think. Change the way they love. Change their passions.
Don't let them ever do one more thing where it's just what they can get, but let them do everything for what it does to please you, Jesus. We're not going to appease people. We're going to appease the Holy Spirit. We don't want to order our steps to draw men. We want to order our lives to draw you. We want to entertain you, Jesus, with our love and our affection tonight. We want, we want the glory. We want the baptism of fire. We want the Holy Spirit to pour out on every person that came up here. Take all the duplicity, all the fear, all the shame, all the lust, all the pride, all the lies. Everything we're born with, that part of us that we want to do right, but it just comes up, it rises up. God, we want you to destroy that. We want you to crucify that. We want that to be circumcised. We want it cut out. We want it crucified. We want it put to death. We don't want good managerial skills. We want destruction, power. Would you destroy all of our own initiatives, all of our own plans? And could we become your plan in effect immediately on the earth? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We just want to be your holy bride. We don't want any blemishes, even though we have them. But in the spirit, we don't want them. We want to be spotless. We want to be pure. We don't want to argue and grumble, well, I like this and I like that. We want to start worshiping and we want to start adoring. We want to start praising. We want to start praying. We, God, we're, we're tired of asking for what we want. We just want you, we want you to have what you want. We'll all benefit better. Jesus, I pray that this would be the most settled group of people in the whole state of Indiana. And when all hell breaks loose, your peace will be magnified and your victories will be greater. And when the demons and, and all the imps and Satan thinks he's got us, it'll be at that precise moment that you'll do the big turnaround. And we'll laugh all the way to the bank because Jesus never fails. And greater he who is in us than he who is in the world. We're, we're not after a goosebump, God. We're after the glory. We're not after some little hair tingling thing. We're after a nature change. We want to partake of your divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. We want to eat your flesh and drink your blood. John 6. We, we want to be one with you. John 17, 21. We want to be one. Just as you and the Father are one. So God, take away everything in us that's not like you. Because it's not in heaven. And fill us with you. Because your presence fills all of heaven. We want our lives to be the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, expand your dominion in our lives. Expand your power in our lives. Expand your presence in our lives. Make the Bible 3D. Could we just get desperate for your word again, God? Could you just make us pant? Could you get us to the place where even our flesh cries out? This one thing. We just want you. And so God, sanctify us. 
Sanctify your church. Baptize your church. Make us a movement. Make us a movement of grace and power. Make us a movement of the kingdom. Make us a bunch of prophets and prophetesses that just decree, this is what he's doing, step into it. Now, God, I don't want to wait till tomorrow night for you to heal people. If anybody's here that's sick, I pray that healing would flow right now to every person. Lord, I think there's holiness in the kingdom, Acts 15, 8 and 9, but I think there's healing in the kingdom, Acts 15, 12. And I think the kingdom's here because the king's in the room. And your word has been released, so that's the kingdom because your kingdom's in the spirit. It's in your word, and your word is spirit. So every sick person, God, here that might have cancer, might have diabetes or heart problems or arthritis or any kind of organ problem or, or any, any kind of blood issue, God, or their joints, I just pray for a, a radical move of healing to sweep through this room right now. Just stretch forth your hand, Jesus. When we preach the word, the hand is right there. The sign is never separated from the full message. The sign verifies the nature of the one who gave us the message. The sign of healing, miracles, signs, wonders. It's never separated from the declaration of the word when it's done without fear of man. God, we've done our best tonight to proclaim your word without fear of man. So touch everybody. I pray that you would touch female organs in women that are struggling with female issues right now. I pray they would be healed in the name of Jesus. I pray every sinus infection would be healed in the name of Jesus. I pray that blind eyes, when they wake up in the morning, they could see. I pray that deaf ears would be opened in the name of Jesus. God, let your glory fall. Lord, could the Nazarenes be the place where everybody stands in line because everybody that comes there gets touched by the healing power of Jesus? Bring a New Testament revival to the Northeast Indiana District. Lord, baptize David and Cheryl with fresh fire. Baptize them in your glory so their faces would look shiny. Change their countenance. Lord, baptize every pastor that's here tonight with fresh fire. Every pastor that's here tonight, God, baptize them with fresh fire. Jesus, we don't want to be the same. Jesus, you are eternal. You've always been. But you emptied your glory and you, you let the Shekinah glow for 33 years. You let it go. You emptied yourself and you seized a piece of flesh and became a man. For 33 years. So that all of us could let you manifest that same glory in us. You paid the price so that we don't have to go it alone. You paid the price so that what you did for 33 years we all could do forever by your spirit. Lord, baptize us with faith, with deeds. Baptize us with faith, with word. Baptize us with holiness that replicates Jesus. We don't want to be the same. Whatever you tell us to do tonight, we'll go start doing it. We, we don't care. We're not up here to count the cost. We're not cutting a deal. We're taking your deal. 
If there's restitution, we're going to get on it. If there's reconciliation, confession, we're going to get on it. We're going to be radically obedient because we don't want to miss the blessing. So thank you, God, for this miraculous night. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that no matter how far we fall from the glory of the book of Acts, you're still walking in the midst of the church. And even though there's judgment, there's mercy. If we'll run to you, you won't turn us away. So thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that it was new tonight. In the presence, in the presence of Jesus, is the fullness of joy. So God, we're not going to look back. We're not going to focus on what was. I believe by the power of your word, all the old is gone, and everything is new now. New. New! New purity, new power, new confidence, new boldness, new zeal, new faith, new vision, new thought processes. It's new. (laughs) New harmony and unity. New harmony and unity. We don't want to preserve, preserve man's anything. We want to propagate God's everything. It's new tonight. Thank you, God, for destroying religion and letting us be free in the kingdom. We give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory. And everybody in the room said, Amen.